everything. First Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 17 is where we're going to be. We're going to get all the way through uh, verse 26 by God's um, grace. Uh, this is an important passage for several reasons while you're turning there. In the New Testament, this passage is the most explicit that lays out our practice of the Lord's Supper in the entire Bible. Um, in the Gospels, we hear about the Lord's Supper, but it's the story of Jesus in the upper room partaking in the Lord's Supper, initiating the Lord's Supper with his disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's Paul explaining the Lord's Supper. Outside of those, there's few uh, mentions and instances of the Lord's Supper taking place, but there's not any real texts that are walking us through what it means and what it doesn't mean, how we should do it, how we should not do it. And so there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misunderstanding with the Lord's Supper, um, and, and I'm not uh, immune to those. Um, several years ago, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I was at Spearman, and I had a friend who's at Panhandle. I grew up in Panhandle, and so our youths were physically like located within 30 minutes, an hour of each other, um, and, and, and we both were, were pretty similar in our thoughts and our beliefs on youth ministry and church. And so what we decided to do was instead of going to a box youth camp, that him and I would plan our own youth camp. We went up to the mountains. Um, we found a little campground. We brought our two groups together. Um, we would plan it all. We would do youth camp. And so we sat down one day at the Plaza in Borger. Uh, that's an important detail because it's just a good restaurant. And we started planning out the camp. We were trying to decide, well, what theme do we want this camp to be? This is a youth camp for teenagers. You're talking sixth grade all the way up through 12th grade. And so what Warren and I decided the theme for camp was going to be was church. That was the theme. Uh, you don't see that with a lot of the big youth ministry stuff, but it was awesome. Uh, what we ended up doing to save money, because I'm cheap, if you haven't learned this by now, just know if there's a way to save money, we will try to find it, and I will do so. Uh, is is uh, Warren and I would preach one of the sessions, and then Warren's pastor and my pastor would preach one session, and then we would make either Warren's pastor or my pastor preach an additional one. It just kind of depended on who we were mad at at the time, who we thought would handle it the best. And so uh, the year we go, the theme was church. That was the whole theme. The whole camp was church. And we just walked through what the church is, what the church isn't, and how, as a youth, you need to understand what the church is and what the church isn't because largely the way we disciple our kids is we shove them off into a room somewhere off in the corner, and we don't ever bring them into the church body or into the church life. And so one of the things that one of the, the whole sessions, the, the theme that we did was just the ordinances of the church. And so Byron preached on the ordinances. He did a sermon on baptism and he did a sermon on the Lord's Supper. And so initially when we planned out the camp, what we thought was, well, we'll do the Lord's Supper at camp with all the youth. It'll be this fun time to do things together. And I used to do that when I was a youth pastor. I, would, I was very much, if you know me, this isn't going to surprise you. If you don't like know me well, you'll be like, he seems like he'd like games. Stuff. I hated games as a youth pastor. We never did them. Um, we would go in. We would do teaching. We'd, just, uh, we'd have fun. We'd, we'd do different things. But as far as like organized games and entertainment, that just isn't my thing. And even with our church, it's not that way. Um, we'll laugh, we'll have fun, but my, my philosophy has always been I want to give you something of value, something of worth. Netflix is a lot cheaper and can entertain you a whole lot better than I can. And so we do the Lord's Supper with our, our youth, or, or we thought about doing the Lord's Supper at this camp, and Byron started studying it, and he came and talked to me. He's like, hey, I don't think we should do the Lord's Supper with just the youth at this camp. And I said, well, why? 
We started looking through the scripture, and we get to 1 Corinthians. And remember, the yous in 1 Corinthians are y'alls. It's to the church. And what we'll see, what I learned then, and what I'm hoping to walk you through this morning, is that the Lord's Supper is meant for the church as a whole. It's not meant for individual ministries. It's not meant for you and your family to do by yourselves. That it's something we partake in as a body of believers. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, there's some important symbolism that's happening. That the same God that saved you saved the people next to you, right? That, that you may not know some of the people. And there's going to be age gaps and generation gaps. And there's going to be differences of work and differences of life and just backgrounds that are different. And ethnic, all sorts of things that are different. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's unifying in a sense that there's one Savior and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one Lord's Supper that we partake in. It's unifying. It's not meant to be for all of these ministries of the church it's meant to be for the church proper and so for me this was like a shock when i first learned it with with byron and 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 we began studying with the church and so now really the only time in the scriptures you come across this where you begin working through it is this passage so that's what we're going to do today we're going to talk about the lord's supper so first corinthians chapter 11 verse 17 uh says this now in giving this instruction i do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that you come together as a church and there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it's necessary that the factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. One person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that you've given us in 1 Corinthians. And I thank you that it comes to us on this Sunday. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not an oversight. God, it's intentional on your part. And so I pray that you would help us this morning as we walk through this text and begin to understand, God, what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be and, and how it unifies us, how it grows us in you, how it makes much of you, Jesus. I pray that you would soften our hearts, mold us and shape us by your word. Encourage us where we need encouragement in this area, God, and convict us where we need conviction. Your word is a two-edged sword. And it brings about all sorts of things that our heart needs. Give us your word this morning, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's start back at verse uh, 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. 
Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Let's pause there. So we've been walking through 1 Corinthians. We get to this section, and a lot of what this section's on is just order in the church. And so last week, if you look back within your text, you saw with the head covering section where God's talking about just dis- distinctions within the roles of men and women within the church. That a man, a male is a man, and a female is a woman, a female, and that God has given us equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, but there's a distinction in the roles that God has given us. And, and Paul tells the church at Corinth, y'all are doing really good at this. Right? And in verse 1, I praise you is what Paul tells them because they're doing the right things in this area. There seems to be a small faction of people that are kind of raising some trouble within that. But by and large, the church as a whole is doing a great job. Now when we get to the Lord's Supper, Paul says, I do not praise you in this. That this is an issue for this church. That there's these divisions that show themselves within the Lord's Supper. If we remember how Paul starts 1 Corinthians, he starts 1 Corinthians, this letter, with these divisions that take place. Some of you like Paul, some of you like Apollo, some of you like Peter, some of you like Jesus. Is, Is Jesus split, is what Paul tells them. Is there divisions amongst the believers because of this? Right, he's going back like some of you have your favorite Sunday school teacher and you elevate that teacher above everybody else in the church. And that's not what the gospel is. So Paul's saying this is something that you have to change. I think it's also interesting that Paul tells them here that he heard this. Right, we know several things about how Paul's getting his information for this letter. It's a unique letter. Right, We know that they wrote to Paul. And, and it said, help us with these issues, right? So we have one end of the conversation where Paul is, is writing back, addressing some of their concerns, addressing some of the issues that are taking place within the church. But then we also know that Chloe gave a report to Paul. And it seems like this is a part that they didn't uh, include in their letter. It's a part they didn't really want Paul to know about. Right? It's one thing to say, write to Paul and put yourself in this picture of like, these are the things we're struggling with, help us with these things. And it's another thing for Paul to hear from somebody else what's going on in the church so that Paul can actually address what's going on. It's as if the Sunday school kids went to the class and said the prayer request that the family doesn't want the teacher to know. It's the truth. It's these things that they're struggling with. And so what is it? It's these divisions. Now here's what we're going to learn about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is meant to be divisive. It is meant to separate out. These are the people who believe in Jesus Christ. These are the people who are baptized believers and belong to a church. And these are the people who are not. That's a clear, distinct division that Paul gives us within the Lord's Supper. What it's not meant to do is within the believers and within the church, divide the church up in multiple ways. It's a church unity issue that Paul is getting at more so than it is about what kind of bread and what kind of juice you're drinking and eating at the Lord's Supper. And Paul goes so far to say that when you gather together, you're gathering together not for the better, but for the worse. That these divisions become apparent when you get right. So, so think about the implications of this as we're thinking about the Lord's Supper. They're gathering together. This isn't individual Sunday school classes scattered around town, right? It's a, a house church in the New Testament. All of the Christians are gathering together in this one house. This is one congregation assembled together to worship God together, to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And Paul is saying, you're gathering together not for better, but because it's worse. 
It's not individual families. It's not age-specific Bible studies. It's not gender-specific Bible studies. It's a whole church gathered together. That's not how Jesus talks about his church. Jesus doesn't talk about his church as it's being worse when you gather together. He talks about the church as better when we're together. But not in Corinth, and sadly not in many churches. One of the things, if you want to join our church that I make you go through now, some of you got grandfathered in. You should go through the membership class anyways. As we talk about first, second, and third tier issues within the church. These are important for us to just distinguish and line out. So, so in the new member class, we'll walk through the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is what our church holds to as our doctrinal statement. But then within that statement or within our beliefs, we have first tier issues, we have second tier issues, and we have third tier issues. And all Christians have these issues and these things. So first tier issues are things that if you do not believe, you're not a Christian. It's not a battle of brothers and sisters on first-tier issues. It's a battle of belief and unbelief, right? So if you say Jesus is not God, that's a first-tier issue. You cannot join our church, not because we don't like you, but it's because you're not a believer. Those are first-tier issues. Second-tier issues are things that are very important, but things that we can differ with brothers and sisters in Christ on. And, and so much so that sometimes, and, and maybe even oftentimes, in second-tier issues, if you have a difference with the church's belief in a second-tier issue, you probably need to evaluate if you should be a member of that church or if you should grace go off to another church that agrees with you, right? So, so for example, uh, we will not speak in tongues here. Now, I know Christians that believe in that. I know Christians that hold to the scriptures with those things. I disagree with them adamantly, and we will walk through why when we get to the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. But I know some Christians who are, are Bible-believing, believe the scriptures, inerrant, infallible, the word of God insufficient, and they hold to that text. I can love them as a brother and sister in Christ, but it's going to be very hard to worship in one congregation together. And then there's third-tier issues which are things we might disagree on but should not affect our unity or our membership within the church, right? So the time of year you decide to put up Christmas decorations, which I think is a first-tier issue, but in reality is probably a second-tier issue or a third, right? If you decide to decorate for Christmas in June, you, you need to evaluate your life. But that's not something we should just argue or get upset about. And so Paul is showing us here with this idea of the Lord's Supper and the reason Paul is explaining it is this is not a second tier issue like we might be tempted to make it. What Paul is telling us in, 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 in uh, uh, verse 19, indeed it's necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized by you. What Paul is saying is the Lord's Supper is not a second tier issue, it's a first tier issue. Our understanding of the gospel, which is what the Lord's Supper is meant to symbolize to us, is not something we can disagree with brothers and sisters about, but still hold to them as brothers and sisters. If we disagree about the fundamentals of the gospel, that's a first-tier issue. So there's Paul saying this is an issue in this church because there's dissension, there's divisions, there's fractions, there's all these things taking place in a first-tier kind of way, a major doctrinal issue that's taking place. So if we, if we didn't read the rest, right, and I didn't tell you about the Lord's Supper, we would look at this text and we'd go, well, I wonder what the issue is. 
Is it the nature of God? Is it the divinity of Jesus? Is it the divinity of the Holy Spirit? Is our understanding of scriptures, is that the issue that Paul is saying? No, he's saying it's the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one gets his own supper, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat or drink, or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. I, I, if nothing else, we have to see the gravity of what Paul is saying in this, this statement. This isn't necessarily like a theological or a doctrinal issue that Paul is saying is first tier. It's more of a social issue. This first-tier issue is about the Lord's Supper, and it's fundamentally about a misunderstanding of what this ordinance is, that they're misconstruing the gospel by misunderstanding the Lord's Supper. So during this time when, when Corinth was written, the way the church would do this, or the way people would do this, was they would have a full meal, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. But apparently what's happening at Corinth is you have these divisions between really two groups of people. You have the haves and you have the have-nots, the rich and the poor. And so what's taking place is so egregious for Paul that he calls this a first-tier issue. And he says, if this is a division and you're doing this wrong, it's not that you're just in sin. It's you're an unbeliever if you don't understand these things. So apparently what's going on is that the rich had separated themselves from the poor, so much so in the church that when they take the Lord's Supper, either the rich would come early and they would have a feast so that the poor couldn't eat their food. Can you imagine a potluck like that? Or they would gather together within this house and the rich would kick the poor outside or kick them out somewhere else so that they could have a feast in the dining room and then the poor would be outside kind of starving in the same way. That's not love. That's why Paul is so upset. He's saying the Lord's Supper is not about creating a division amongst the believers. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It's not about you and your buddies or your family going away while everything else figures it out. It's not about you saying, hey, I like you guys. Let's all gather together. We'll do this together, kind of unify ourselves, and then we'll kick everybody else out. And when they get their act together, get their social value up, then they can join us in the Lord's Supper. Paul is upset He's not, we have to be careful, Paul's not a socialist. He's not saying sell everything and then just let the whole group have everything. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is care about your brothers and sisters in Christ. You covenanted together with them. That you're supposed to be praying for one another. You're supposed to be loving one another. You're supposed to be supporting one another. You're not supposed to be having parties, calling it the Lord's Supper, and then getting hammered while a whole group of you is starving. That's not unifying. That's not uplifting. It's certainly not the gospel. It's a complete misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. So what is the Lord's Supper? Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's so interesting about this passage is we see several things at the beginning. Paul received this from Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is not a construction the early church put together. It's from Christ. I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. And Jesus, Paul, is dating this in history. Right? There's a real chance that while the, the Gospels are being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that if they had been written at this point, they hadn't been circulated to all of the churches. So there's a real chance that the first time the Corinthians ever heard any talk about what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be and not supposed to be is from this letter. And so Paul is saying, on the night when Jesus is betrayed, that's a cue for us to understand the story that's taking place, to understand the idea, because the night when Jesus was betrayed is the Passover. We have to understand this if we understand what Jesus is doing with the Lord's Supper. So in the book of Genesis, we preach through. Most of the sermons are still online if you want to go listen to them. Not all of them are because we have trouble with the computer from time to time. But the book of Genesis is largely about God forming a people and showing us how he relates to humanity. It's through these covenants that God has given. And we know from Genesis that there's one snake crusher, a line of the snake crusher, that's going to come and going to be the Savior for all mankind. That's Genesis. In Exodus, the second book of the Bible, do you know the first word in Exodus? It's one of my favorite little facts of the scriptures. First word of Exodus is, and. If you read Genesis, you get Joseph and his brothers, they're being exported to Egypt, and then all of a sudden you don't know how it ends. And then you get to Genesis, Exodus, and it goes, and, and then it gives you a brief summary of how the Israelites got to uh, Exodus. It gives you a brief summary of how they went from 70 people to so many people that Pharaoh is petrified of this people group. And so what does Pharaoh do? Kill all the males under two years old. That's his decree. Look, we're about to come across Easter, I mean, not Easter, what season? Christmas, Christmas. About to come across Christmas season. There's parallels to Pharaoh's rule and reign and to Herod's rule and reign when Jesus is born. What does Herod try to do? Kill all the males under two years old. But there's this great irony that takes place, right? Do you know where Jesus and Joseph, uh, Joseph leads his family to because of God for safety? Egypt. There's all sorts of these, that's, that's for free. wasn't even in the sermon notes. So you get Exodus, and in Exodus, it's this rescue of God's people out of slavery, this story of salvation that permeates so much of Israel's history, even up to when Jesus is born. And so what we see is God calls this man named Moses, who is a murderer and a stutterer, he says, you're going to lead the people out of captivity. You're going to be the one to stand up to Pharaoh. And Moses says, absolutely, let's do it. Yes. No, that's not Moses' response. Moses' response is, I'm a stutterer and I'm hiding with my father-in-law because I murdered a guy. And God says, I'll send Aaron to you, but you're going to have to suck it up and do this. And so God sends Moses and Aaron. They go before Pharaoh, and nine times they tell Pharaoh, if you don't let God's people go, there will be these plagues that will come upon you. And the plagues are water turned to blood, and frogs, gnats, flies, the Egyptian, only the Egyptian livestock die, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. 
all of those plagues, like we read them, we're like, those would be pretty rough plagues. They all correlate with an Egyptian deity. So it's God through Moses and Aaron saying, I'm God over your fake little gods. I am in control of all of these things, not your fake little deities. And what we see Pharaoh doing is he's kind of wishy-washy in his decisions. Sometimes the scripture tells us God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes the scripture tells us Pharaoh hardened his own heart, which is probably the truth of what's going on there. And so the plague would come, Pharaoh would say go, and then he would change his mind. And the plague would come, and Pharaoh would say go, and he changed his mind. So forth and so forth until they get to the tenth plague, which is the hardest and the worst of them. It's where God tells Moses and Aaron, I'm going to come, the angel of death will swoop by, and the firstborn will be killed. But there's a way out. And the way out is to sacrifice a, a, a spotless lamb to get the blood of the spotless lamb and to paint it over the doorpost. And then as a part of this ritual, you strap on your shoes, right? Don't like, You get your chacos and you tighten them down. Or if you got your crocs, you put them in four-wheel drive. You double knot your shoes. Be ready to run is what Paul, uh, not Paul, is what, what Jesus is, is telling the uh, people in Exodus. And so they go through, they have the plague, and who doesn't trust God and put blood over the door? Pharaoh. His firstborn son dies, and so he says, get away, get out of here. And so this is where Moses and them flee. This is where we have the idea of unleavened bread. There wasn't enough time for the yeast to take hold of the bread, and God told them this. He says, so just grab your bread, grab your stuff, get out of here. What we see are the, the Egyptians giving the Israelites gold, just like, go, get out of here. We've seen the plagues. Go. So it's in the wilderness, it's, it's after this, that there's this feast of unleavened bread that God establishes with his people. And repeatedly, what we see in, in the, the, uh, P- the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is this command. Teach your children these things. Teach your children these things. Teach your children these things over and over and over. And they always correlate with the feast, or they always correlate with the law of God. And so when Jesus comes along, they're still celebrating the Passover event when God passed over his people. And they celebrate it by having a meal. And there's all sorts of cups of wine that represent various things. And there's bread that comes through. And so Jesus takes two of those symbols, the unleavened bread and and the fruit of the vine, the Welch's grape juice. No. And he turns them. And he says, no long, like this symbolized how God saved you in the past, right? And this is the last supper of Jesus. This is the Passover. This is when Judas betrays Jesus, right? In 24 hours, Jesus will be on a cross. He has not died yet. He's still alive, very much so. Hasn't been arrested. And he takes the bread and he takes the wine and he tells the disciples, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant that I'm establishing among you. Now, those would be odd signs in the first room, right? Jesus is still there with them. But it's meant to remind us things. It's meant to point us to Jesus' body given to us, that his sacrifice is what saves us. It's not our work. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that does. The juice is meant to represent the blood of Jesus poured out on our behalf. The wrath of God that you and I deserve was taken by Jesus Christ. And when we drink the juice, it's meant to remind us of that. Did you know one of the first things that got accused of the early church was that they were cannibals? This passage where Jesus says, my body, my blood, eat and drink. And the original people were like, oh, hold on. What? So what we see Paul doing here 
what we see other New Testamenters when they talk about the Lord's Supper is it's not something we kick out everybody who's not a Christian and leave for. It's something that if you're an unbeliever, and I'll argue in just a second, you should not take the Lord's Supper, but it is okay for you to be here and see that we're not cannibals. That if we're Protestants within the Protestant denomination, what we believe about the Lord's Supper is that it's symbolic. That the bread is bread that represents the body of Christ. And the, the juice, right, we don't do wine. The juice is juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And the body of Jesus Christ represents the sacrifice on the cross. And the juice, the blood of Jesus Christ represents the, the new covenant that God issues. It's this covenantal idea of how God deals with his people. And so the new covenant then is God making a people. The new covenant idea is God making good people not based on how awesome and great we are, but based on how awesome and great Christ is. And so then what we see Paul saying here is this is meant to be something for the entire church. The church does this together as one. It's celebrated at a gathering. Not individuals, not just families, not just small groups, the entire church. And in the New Testament, there's not really any evidence that it was celebrated any other way than this. See, Paul's point is that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we share together in the benefits of Christ's death. Because we have fellowship with Christ, and because we've been saved to a Father God, we gain brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that we fellowship with one another based on the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, in verse 18, it says we participated together in the sacrifices that were offered on the altar. It's this identity. uh, We're identified with the sacrifices, so we receive the benefits of the sacrifice. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to identify with or seek from false gods. Do you remember the section where Paul talked a whole lot about offering food to false idols? It's now Paul saying, this is how you eat within the church. This is what you do. Don't tie it up with those false idols. Don't tie it up with that demon worship that they're doing in the temple down the street. Here is how you do the Lord's Supper. It's an allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone, not any other idols, that we don't have fellowship with idols, right? You can't have fellowship with idols and fellowship with Christ. They're mutually exclusive. It's either all Jesus or none of Jesus. That's the way the scriptures talk about our relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's how it talks about the Lord's Supper. You can't play both sides. And what we'll see next week, I didn't want to get into it because there's a lot there, but next week is the self-examination that's supposed to take place with the Lord's Supper. So then really, when Paul's talking about this first-tier issue that we're looking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's, it's the Lord's Supper, but it's really revealing something else to us. It's showing us that the early Christians, one, did what Jesus commanded them to do. They shared the bread, they shared the wine to commemorate the death of Jesus. They did it as a local church. That they shared in the, uh, the blood and the body of, of Christ. That they understood when they took the Lord's Supper, it was meant to remind them of the cross, to remind them of the gospel, to remind them of Jesus. It wasn't meant to be a pre-sermon snack. 
it reminded them that if they have fellowship with Christ, that they keep company with Christ, and they keep company with other Christians as well, that they have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. That if we're unified to Christ, we're unified to each other in Christ. See, what Paul is doing is he's, he's setting up a boundary. It's, it's not meant, uh, it, there is divisions that the Lord's Supper brings amongst us, but it's not divisions within the church. It's divisions of the church and the world. That's so what Paul is saying is when we take the Lord's Supper, that's your Christian identity is the gospel. It's not the pagan identity that's around us. And it paints this beautiful picture that only Christians are going to understand. That through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have fellowship with him, and we also have fellowship with his people. In the meal Jesus gives us, we taste of the goodness of this twofold fellowship. In the Lord's Supper, the gospel becomes not just what we hear, not just what we see, but what we taste, what we eat. This is why for some, the Lord's Supper is called communion. Because we commune with one another. This is why when church discipline takes place, sometimes it's called excommunication, excommunion. That it's this breaking of fellowship. So in the Lord's Supper, we have fellowship with Christ. We also have fellowship with each other. The Lord's Supper expresses our union with Christ and therefore our unity in Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we commune with Christ. Therefore, we have communion with one another. So it's a reminder, and it's a significant reminder then that what's happened in the past is being brought to the present for you and I and applied to our hearts and applied to our souls. In the Lord's Supper, it's each of us saying, I eat this bread and I drink this cup because of what the Lord did for me on the cross, that he freed me from my sin. Even as we look back to the cross, we're looking ahead to the coming kingdom that Jesus gives to us. We talk about it all the time when we take the Lord's Supper. It's an appetizer. That there's the marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming when Jesus comes back. And so we take the Lord's Supper looking back, looking at the present, and looking ahead, knowing that Christ has saved us from our sin. This isn't something the church invented. Jesus instituted this. And so it's something that every believer should be regularly participating in, in obedience to Jesus, with the expectation of a renewed fellowship with him and a renewed fellowship with one another. This isn't just the church's act, it's the believer's act. You eat the bread, you drink the juice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we individually do that together. So only those who trust Jesus' death to save them should commemorate uh, the Lord's Supper in this way because only those who are Christians who believe in Jesus Christ are going to understand that symbolism that takes place with the Lord's Supper. If not, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're just doing some grape juice and some real stale crackers. So the Lord's Supper is to remind those in the church's service who are Christians that we're together, but it's also meant to remind those in the church's service who are not Christians that you need to trust in Jesus, that you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper, that you should let the elements pass you by. It's evangelistic, not in the sense that we're trying to just broaden and draw circles where Jesus draws Lines. It's evangelistic in a sense to say, this is what believers do, and you're not a believer. 
doesn't like it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't possess benefits apart from the Lord's Supper for those, right? If you're an unbeliever, we're glad you're here and you should be here. And we want to be accepting of unbelievers here, but you're not going to understand the Lord's Supper. It's a celebration of the finished work of Christ. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we reenact our response to the gospel. When we take the Lord's Supper, Jesus' body was given for me and the blood was shed to forgive my sins. This is true, and it's true for me that Jesus is my Savior. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're proclaiming over and over and over again. So to receive the Lord's Supper is to renew your commitment to Christ and renew your submission to Jesus. It's a sign of the new covenant. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God gave a covenant, he gave signs. We know the rainbow from uh, Noah's Ark, right? And it's a sign that often gets hijacked by pop culture, right? The, the rainbow means something very different outside of the church than it does in the church. We've talked about this when we preach to Jesus. I think it's interesting that that's the sign that the LGBTQ movement has come to grasp because what that sign signifies is that there is a common grace and that God is not going to just straight wipe you out right now, but that you need to repent and turn to your sins. It's actually kind of an appropriate sign for them. We also see that circumcision was commanded for Abraham and his children as a sign. And when God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, there was a lamb that had to be slaughtered. There was a sacrifice that had to be taken place. And then there was blood that covered the people. And then the people ate a meal together. What we see is the old covenant wasn't ratified just by sacrificial blood, but by a meal that God himself hosted. The new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus' blood sacrifice, and then it's repeatedly ratified in a meal that Jesus hosts. It's for God's people, and it's to attest to their commitment to the new covenant. So as we take the elements, we attest that we receive Christ as ours, and we give ourselves completely to him every time we take it over and over and over again. It's a renewing, another oath signing. It's a continuing trust in the new covenant. Baptism is different. Baptism is the initiating of this covenantal relationship. Baptism is where you go public with your faith biblically. The Lord's Supper is where you continue to recommit to the Lord. So you're baptized once, and then you do the Lord's Supper repeatedly over and over. When we're saved, we're adopted into the family of God, and baptism is like the front door that brings you into the local uh, family, the local church. And then how you live in that house, when you live in that house, when you're brought to your house, what do families do? We eat, and that's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be, is this recurring thing that families do over and over and over again. The Lord's Supper united many into one, and it marks a church body from the world, and a church that celebrates the Lord's Supper is Christ's people showed up on earth. There's some theology I'm going to throw at you real fast. Because not everybody believes that about the Lord's Supper. We're Protestant, and so largely Protestants agree with our understanding of the Lord's Supper, that it is symbolic. Where we'll disagree is with the various secondary, maybe even tertiary things, but almost all Protestants agree that it's symbolic. Now, we can take this too far. I know people, I know churches that will do the Lord's Supper with like Oreos and Mountain Dew or bagels and coffee. That seems to be taking the image that Jesus has given us way too far. 
But I also know like the, the Roman Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation. Know the word. It might be on the crossword puzzle someday. What they believe is that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. So when the priest holds up the bread and he says, this is my body, it is transubstantiated into the physical, literal body of Jesus Christ. And so you take, it can only be performed by a priest, and it has to happen at Mass, and this is why you have to go to Mass every week, is because you have to redo the sacrifice over and over. It's Jesus re-sacrificing himself over and over and over. Again, one of Martin Luther's big quips with the Roman Catholic Church when he started the Protestant Reformation was this idea that he didn't necessarily disagree with that with the Lord's Supper, which we'll see why the Lutherans are different in a second. But what they would do is the priests were scared that they would spill the wine on the carpet. And if you spilled the wine on the carpet, it's the literal blood of Jesus. You can't get that out. And so what the priests would do is they would only give you the bread. They wouldn't give you the wine. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's symbolic. Right? In the Passover room, on the Last Supper, when Jesus holds up the bread and he holds up the juice, the wine, it was bread and it was juice. It wasn't Jesus cutting a chunk of his flesh out and saying, this is my bread. It wasn't Jesus pouring blood into a cup. He was symbolic in that room. Jesus also calls himself the true vine and the door, and he's not saying that he's literally a vine and literally a door. They're symbolic. They're images for us. We also know that Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. It's not something we redo over and over. Hebrews 9, 25 and 28 says this, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood on his own. For when we have, su- uh, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it appointed for man to die once, and then after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to those who are eagerly awaiting him. So we reject transubstantiation. Consubstantiation. This is what the Lutherans believe. It's not the literal body and blood of Christ, but that Christ is present in, with, and through the bread of the Lord's Supper. We're going to reject that. We understand that Jesus is with it, but he's with it symbolically. So how do we take the Lord's Supper then, or when do we take the Lord's Supper is, is a better question. We take it when we're most fully gathered together. Sunday mornings is when we take it. It's not for ministries. It's not for uh, groups that are meeting within the church. It's for when the church is most fully gathered together, when there's the most diversity, when we're all gathered together for the most part. It's meant to unify us into one body, to make the church the church. It doesn't divide against age lines. It doesn't divide against ethnic lines. It doesn't even divide against biological family lines. It divides between the church and the world. Who can take the Lord's Supper? I'll walk through all of these quickly. Baptized believers who belong to a church. So we've seen 
various movements in church history that argue that the Lord's Supper should be open to all people. If you want to take the Lord's Supper, come on, and it doesn't matter what you believe. We reject that. That's not what Jesus talks about. That's not what Paul talks about with the Lord's Supper. It's evangelistic, but it's evangelistic in the sense that it divides the church from the world. And so if you're on the side of the world when the Lord's Supper comes by, you need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. Not just so you can take the Lord's Supper, but more importantly, so that you can understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and be with him fully and completely. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of your profession of faith in Christ. It's a renewal of your commitment to Jesus and to his family. If you're an unbeliever, you've never made that commitment. You can't renew it. Baptized believers. Baptism is where faith goes public. We see this in, the, uh, in Acts. When somebody becomes a believer, they're baptized. That happens in the book of Acts all the time. We, we do some stuff different with baptism. We delay baptism typically, especially for younger kids, because we want you to know why you're getting baptized. But ultimately, it's up to you if you're an adult or your family to kind of help you walk through those things. But baptism is where we publicly commit to Christ. It's where we affirm our faith. It's where the church affirms to disciple us. It's where we affirm that we're going to become members and believers in the church. It's how we publicly profess Christ. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of our public profession of Christ. If you haven't publicly professed Christ, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because it's not a private meal among friends. It's a church that's celebrating the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Only those who've gone public as Christians may celebrate. Now, there's a nuance here. And we had this happen a few years ago. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, the heater in the baptistry broke, and I have a strict policy where I'm not going to freeze in the baptistry. That's just a, I need to work that sin out of me, but that's just where it's at right now. And so we had a season where the baptistry was not available for an extended period of time. The jacuzzi brand heater broke, and I'm still a little upset that we didn't replace it with a jacuzzi brand heater. I'd preach from the baptistry. Bubbles. So let's say if the baptistry is broken and you're not able to be baptized, but you've repented, you want to be baptized, you're on the list to be baptized, but we have the Lord's Supper take place between when you've repented, when you've said you want to be baptized, to when you're physically absolutely able to be. It's, it's, it's a matter of conscience. I don't think it's a bad thing if you take the Lord's Supper when you're on the list to be baptized. There's just things that have taken place that have kept you from that. But we need to understand that does hinder the symbolism that comes with the Lord's Supper not gone public you've gone public in your faith but you're not fully gone public right you haven't been dunked submerged under water but where the standard fails grace abounds so whatever it is seek to honor and glorify christ and we'll be okay we also see that it's baptized believers who belong to a church in the New Testament, whenever you come to faith in Christ and you're baptized, you joined the church. You see that all throughout the book of Acts. So before a Christian become a member of Christ's body and a brother and sister in the family, what you will not find in the New Testament is a churchless Christian. They don't exist. Every Christian should belong to a church. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, when there's a man who's caught in adultery with his stepmother, he's put under church discipline. The most basic meaning of that passage has to be we should know who's a member and not a member of the church so that if there is church discipline that needs to take place because of an issue like that, we can remove them from church, uh, the church role in a way that's helpful and glorifying to God to say, you've got to turn your life around. You've got to repent. You've got to follow after Jesus. So failing to join a church 
right? And, and, and for us, it doesn't have to be this church. Like if you're visiting, I know Thanksgiving's coming up, and you're visiting for Thanksgiving, we take the Lord's Supper, and you're a, a covenant member of your evangelical gospel center church, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. And if you go visit somewhere else, so you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with them. Just make sure you understand what it's symbolizing and what it's not symbolizing. It's a meal for the church. A member who's uh, a Christian who's not a member of the church, who lives here, but just hasn't joined the church, needs to join. We're a body. We've covenanted together. It's what we do. It makes us one. It's where the church shows up. It's an effective sign of our existence. To, admit, to be admitted into church membership is to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. Right Again, this is why some will call church discipline excommunion, excommunication. Communion, excommunion. And the goal of excommunion is never to just push somebody down and beat them. The goal is for them to come back into communion with us. But it's a serious enough sin that they would do those things. Acts 20, verse 7 says this. On the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. I read that passage for us because it shows us that Paul and Luke were not members of that church, but they took the Lord's Supper with them. In principle, anyone is qualified to join a local church and participate in the Lord's Supper should be able to. So putting it all together, the Lord's Supper should be celebrated by baptized believers who are active members in the local church. Lastly, who should lead the Lord's Supper? If you don't have a pastor, you should decide who's the most qualified and who teaches the Bible regularly because that's what you're proclaiming with the Lord's Supper. It's a visible word. Not every church has a pastor, but it should be the person who is teaching the scriptures the most. We take the Lord's Supper, not because it's a snack. We take the Lord's Supper, not because it's a little drink right before the sermon. We take the Lord's Supper because Christ gave it to us to take. But it's meant to remind us of him. It's meant to call us to repent of our sin and to turn to Jesus in belief and in faith and to trust him for our salvation. It's far more than we make it out to be. It reminds us of King Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can take the Lord's Supper as a church, God, that you've given us this ordinance, that you've given us these things that we can uh, take together we can be unified in you, that we can glory in you, that we can make much of you, Jesus. God, I pray now as we sing a song in response, that you would help our hearts to align to your word, that you'd help us to reflect on your word, God, that you'd help us to think about the Lord's Supper. We're not partaking in it today, we'll, we'll partake next week. Help us to think through those implications and to align ourselves un, in under the Lord's Supper, under your sovereignty, under your rule in a way that's good and honorable and pleasing to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Rams is going to.